From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 193 of the Killing It podcast this is carl joined today as always by ryan and dave and we're heading towards the end of the year and the holiday season so we have another holiday themed question of the week (laughs) how old were you when you realize santa isn't real wait what wait what spoiler alert (laughs) i was totally gonna do that joke too like <laughs> yeah, I can say with 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 absolute precision. Six years old, first grade. I remember the kid who told me, "Is like you mean you know like what?" And of course, my reaction as a six year old who was just crushed and devastated, my reaction was, "Well, yeah, duh. I already knew that too." So when I went home and I was in a very very bad mood, and my mother asked me, "Why are you in such a bad mood?" I was like no reason and it wasn't until later that it came out and and then there was a whole like growing moment and uh, it was an after school special in, in our home as i learned <laughs> that not all things are as they appear well i have i don't remember i genuinely don't remember actually like i, I don't remember the the, the time the diff, the difference and i always just remember knowing that it was a thing and i'm even la- laughing going like maybe we ought to put a spoiler on this episode like just in case like just don't because right listen. Right, kids don't kids don't listen to killing it, uh, but but I legitimately don't remember. I, I I can't can't pull exactly the time. I I mean I know it was sometime around grades one through three. I just couldn't tell you when. I have five brothers, so two of them are older than me. So I I think I don't remember a time when I wasn't at least suspicious because. Uh, my my experience had already been polluted by by the time my memories uh, started. So, older brothers will right. do that. So, to you. see, my 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 problem is I can I can still remember. This was in the nineteen seventies. I was wearing a maroon short sleeve velour shirt. I remember it. Like I think that was when I realized that I don't have a very. I, I don't have a very deep memory, but I have a very photographic memory, so I can remember the pictures of where I remember the clothes I was wearing on that day. Wow! Beautiful. Wow! <laughs> Look at Side note and a shout out: if you haven't seen a Christmas story, Christmas the best it's, line in the movie is uh, the, the kids are going off to see Santa, and he says, "Don't let him kick you in the face." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did actually watch that over the holiday weekend to kick off our, our holidays. I will say, like you know, if you like the first one. It hits the beats and hits the notes. Uh, I'm not sure I will be watching it every year in the same way that I watch Christmas Story. Well, we sat down and watched the old one and then the new one back to back. And it's got a couple of laugh out loud moments. So Nice. See, happy holidays, everyone. Let's let's do this. Well, do you know about Stir Shaken? If you're doing voice for your customers, you'd better. The deadline was June 30th. This technology is focused on reducing robocalls and IT providers have to take action. Are you compliant? The team at OIT VoIP has put together resources for you to learn more or for their customers. It's already handled. Want to learn more? Visit oit.co slash MSP radio for resources to help make sure you're covered. 
Excellent. Let's dive into our first topic here, sirs. Uh, the FTX contagion continues to spread. Not that that's news to anybody, but the interesting news that we're going to take a look at here is the ripple effect that is directly impacting several of the well-known uh, VC and PE firms that uh, often invest in MSP vendors and around our industry. So uh, not only is crypto melting down, but so too is a tiny little portion of the portfolio of some of the folks who are investing in your tools, vendors, your service providers, and others that you do business with every day. Uh, gentlemen, what do you think about this particular ripple I think effect? Dave and I have the same response, which is, I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. <laughs> I know. Cry me a river for the PE guys. I, so, I, like, th there's so much to this. I just have to, to smile. I am a fundamentals guy, right? I believe in the fundamentals of a business, and I'm only gonna. Get, I'm only interested if it's an actual thing, right? There's a good idea that actually creates revenue, and you spend some to make the thing, and you make pro profit at the bottom. Like, I believe in that model because I don't know. I'm a business person, right? <laughs> and, and all of these people, uh, who's you know, these the, the speculative investors. I don't know. I'm going to call them again what I always call them. Gamblers are gambling. They don't know anything more than anybody else. Oh, and by the way, in this case, they know less. They know less than those of us that run businesses because it's become incredibly apparent that you don't know if you take your fingernail and you scratch at the surface of FTX – that it's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> like, if you do any level of due diligence, it's crumbled in terms of their assets. And so I look at this and go, what are you guys, idiots? No, you just have large piles of money and you have decided to gamble them all around on every speculative thing you could possibly do because you got such large piles of money. So don't think these guys are master brain surgeons that are so much smarter than the rest of us. They just got large piles of money and they are out there gambling. Well, I will say I'm a little bit shocked that this is allowed. And I think one of the things going to come out of this is a little bit of federal regulation because if if I gave you my life savings or you know some chunk of it and I said all right I'm going to trust you to invest this properly and if you decide you want to buy into Connectwise Kaseya you know whatever uh, I, I can see that but if you said oh no I'm going to take a whole bunch of it and I'm going to put it into cryptocurrencies I would say no 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 give me my, give me my money back first <laughs> right I mean and so <laughs> I think that it's weird. We're in this weird area where banks are creating cryptocurrencies, but they're really basically just putting blockchain onto their accounting system um, and, and calling it cryptocurrency. Uh, this is actual gambling on cryptocurrency. And I personally, I think it should be illegal for people to do that. You know, I mean, there, there's a there's a line where things become too speculative. I wouldn't give somebody money if they were going to be looking for gold mines or diamond mines or, or oil, uh, you know, that's just me. But that you could make the argument that those are legitimate investments and we have enough history that if you put a certain amount of money in, you're getting a certain amount of money out. Crypto is not like that. And yeah, I think we, we need to make sure that we protect the people who uh, don't have billions of dollars to just throw around because they're also investing in some of this. Some of this is legit fraud. Like, you know, I'm not going to play the, the acronym game. Sang, Sam Bankman-Fried, I will not 
do the, the abbreviation thing, should go to yes. jail. He committed fraud and he should go to jail. And there is there are there's too much of these instances where you see like people have committed crimes, right? And they should go to jail for this. And I think that that's an important set of consequences that if all these people can just fling everybody else's money around and have no consequences, well, then you're going to get more of that. So, you know, that's my little rant on like, you kind of do need rules of the game to to in, you know to understand it's so all the crypto guys who said oh let's just take all the rules away and it'll just the market will yeah this is what happens everybody like there's kind of a hundred some years of actual precedent of why banking does what it does because we've set up rules <laughs> and it's not that it couldn't be improved it's just that it needs to be improved within the structure of some logic and some rules, right? I'll go back where you started, Dave, and and I look at it when I was a young kid who did not understand investing and all the terminologies and everything. I, I used to watch the movies and I would watch the news reports on, on Wall Street and, and venture capital and I would think, ooh, these guys, they're rocket scientists. They know things I just do not understand. They understand the deeper meanings. And I heard way back when the difference between being a fundamentals investor and being a momentum investor. And I understood the fundamentals and you know, revenue minus cost of goods equals gross margin, et cetera. Um, and then I was like, okay, so somebody smart, explain to me what you mean when you say I'm a momentum investor. And they gave me this very long-winded, very puffed up answer. And at the end of it, I was like, so what you're saying is you're, you're, you're saying groupthink. You're saying like mass, like crowd psychology. If, if a thousand people are running in one direction, you run with them, even though you don't know why they're running in that direction. And of course, none of the investor professionals wanted that to be the description that was used. But in the end, that is what we're talking about. And that's what happened inside the crypto industry. Here's where this comes home for people in our industry, right? There's, there's an upside and a downside to this story. Number one is that I should think that some of these VC and PE companies who are investing in managed services firms, either at the vendor level or doing acquisitions and roll-ups that are happening all across the MSP space, I would hope that this would call them out in public and force them to say, let's look at the fundamentals here and not just do it because everybody else on the block is doing it and I have FOMO, right? I hope that that is the side effect. The downside to this, the other side that, I am, that I'm looking at is... Okay, so when a lot of these well-known vendors in our industry receive these infusions of capital that, that, were, that were given to them by these big firms, many of us in the industry think, ooh, they must have their I's dotted and T's crossed and they must know what they're doing because surely these very grown-up investment professionals would not give them all of this money if they, they were not serious businesses. And as a result, you see a ton of PR around our industry. We received an investment from this firm. Therefore, you should bet your entire business on us because we are clearly the ones who know what's going on. If you outsource your due diligence to somebody else, you are the sucker at the table who's going to take it in the teeth. This is a delicate time in the industry, and I think there are some ripples yet to be experienced. Well, and so, I mean, I'm 100% with you. Like, you know, you want to judge these businesses that you're potentially doing business with based on their fundamentals. Because, by the way, I'm going to say a quote from Channel E to here Tom Bravo, CEO Orlando Bravo, expressed shock over FTX's implosion. Shock, you are, I say. Shock, you, you <laughs> sir. Did not do due diligence. You are not that smart. And so, you know, so don't, so don't, 
Yeah, don't outsource your due diligence. You, and if the if the business idea does not make sense to you and you ask questions about it and then realize it still does not make sense, perhaps you do not want to do business with them. <laughs> well, we are out of time on this one. So I'm, I knew this. The, the catnip keeps coming this week for us. Uh, because, uh, you know, Amazon has made some noise about, despite investing billions in, uh, in Alexa and in voice, the products in the space are not performing as expected, particularly around, around Amazon's investment, both in usage and in terms of commercial value. So the, the question here then, gents, is, uh, with Amazon, looking to do deep cuts on their um, on their staff and, and potentially re-examine this investment. What, do, what say you about the uh, voice assistant space? Well, I, I'm a big believer, as is Dave. I know Dave's uh, always saying this is the operating system or the interface of the future. Um, but I think one of the things that's sort of touched on very briefly in this article is that maybe a simpler thing to basically say, I want to do some simple things. Uh, my daughter loves uh, Alexa and, you know, she too would have to turn it off in order to record this at her house. <laughs> but uh, I was at their house and they had like music going on and all this, you know, noise and activity and dogs barking and whatever. And both Rosie and Victoria had timers going through Alexa. And I'm like, how, how do you know? How does it know whose timer is which? And they said, we are just very careful on how we speak to her. And she does she does quite well with that. And, but but they were very clear, like they get what the limits are, and they've developed a separate language almost in how they speak. Now I don't I don't use Alexa at all, so I don't know. But the I do think that if there were like seven commands and you could just execute those perfectly, it would be a great start. Unfortunately, that also leads to uh, the the classic opportunity for somebody to come in and disrupt that market by saying I'll do seven this year, seven next year, seven the year after. I want to I want to separate three different things because I I am very pro voice as a UI, and I want to separate the idea of voice as a UI versus the platform that some of these these technologies are being used. And then on top of that, the voice assistants themselves, because they are three different things. And I think this is an important distinction. I still fundamentally believe that voice is a user interface. I think it makes perfect sense, particularly if you wanna to move toward a world of ubiquitous computing and with compute devices all over, voice makes perfect sense to me as a way to interact, one more way to interact, the same way we've mastered typing, mice, uh, pointing their, you know, the, the ability to touch, like all of these things are all interfaces, that is that. Then the next level is the platform, something like a smart home platform. Those are a different thing and they will be need to be monetized. And then on top of that, you have voice assistants. Each have various level of utilities. It's the top two that are being that are struggling to be monetized. In particular, the idea of using a voice assistant on a platform like the Alexa development platform, Amazon is struggling to monetize that. So by the way is Google, so by the way is Apple, like they are all struggling to monetize that. That does not mean there's not a model there. Right, that's also a bit that there is. There are, have always been platforms for automation that are out there. I've been on one in my home for a very long time. I'm a Control 4 user. That's the platform. Amazon that becomes a voice assistant as a feature of that platform. 
I'm still having my my platform, right? But even even if that were to go away, I would still have that platform. And it's important to understand the three layers. You have to look at the the top two are the ones that have to make money because we've we generally don't pay for interfaces. We apply interfaces to the other ones. See, and I, I think all of that makes sense from an architectural point of view. I want to look at it from a business strategy or an innovation point of view. And I'll put this back into the context of when Siri was first released in 2011, the media indicated that this might be one of the most interesting and innovative products that Apple had ever brought to market. And this was post-iPhone, obviously, right? This was, this was very, very high praise. Everybody was talking about this and saying, oh my God, this is going to take over the world. Can you even fathom the things that we could do with this technology? Today, what the employees inside Amazon's Alexa division are saying is, this is a colossal failure of imagination. I want to clarify that. This is not a failure of a technology or an interface. This is a failure of an implementation or a use case for a particular technology. And I want to go back, like draw a slightly broader picture here. If you guys look at all the technology that you use and that you depend on every single day, your phone, your computer, your tablet, the internet, e-commerce, yada, yada, yada. Every single one of those innovations was invented and deployed commercially prior to 2010, okay? This voice is one of the things like 3D printing, like machine learning, like nanobots, like all these other things, right, that were invented or commercialized post-2010. And do you notice a difference in those two buckets of technology innovations? Those that have come lately have not been implemented effectively. I think what we did as an industry was, again, I think we... We looked at it and we said, well, these vendors invented a technology and by itself, self-contained, it ought to change the world and my job is just to transact. I'm here to sell this thing to you, make sure it's plugged in and turned on, and then you're going to get all the benefits from it. That is not how innovation works. That never was how any of these technologies became ubiquitous and actually changed civilization. I still believe that voice can do that. It's a question of in between I invented a voice interface technology and you are the end user who can use that thing. There needs to be somebody in between who says, oh, and by the way, here's an interesting, compelling, realistic use case where you can apply that technology and here's how I can help you go out and make that thing happen. That is a colossal failure of execution and implementation, not of innovation. I think we invented something cool. I don't think the failure is is monetization. I think I think the, the, the goal of monetization is silly in this respect. If if you could say, look, I've got the interface on all of my devices so that you will never go to another brand, you don't need to monetize the interface. <laughs> Right, because what you've got is the interface that people know and love and want to use, and so they will stick with your brand. I think part of the failure is that, as so many things in technology, we haven't standardized what we want this thing to be a front end for. If you have an Apple computer, its file system is going to be different, its interactions are going to be different, the commands are going to be different from a Windows computer, but at the end of the day, things get stored in zeros and ones on a hard drive and it works. And so if you think about the automotive industry is my favorite example of this. 
if you go to CES and you look at what they're doing with automobiles, all the automobiles have figured out we need these inputs, right? And so they say, okay, how do I do this? And they are ending up writing the stuff for both Google and uh, iOS interfaces. Well, why don't they just put out an industry standard and let Google and iOS figure out how you make those connections and so that you could actually talk in your Siri talk or talk in your Google talk, depending on what you want to do, right? Uh, but nobody wants to do that because it means that they can't be unique and, and you know, little snowflakes in the universe. Uh, right. So I think it'll happen eventually. We're just not. Oh, I don't yet. think that'll happen at all. Actually, like in, particularly in automotive, like in automotive, no, those those manufacturers are well, not ever is a long time, Carl. But those manufacturers are not at all motivated to give away the interface to their vehicles to another provider. No, but 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 again, it doesn't have to be the interface per se. It has to be. I accept these commands. It's like a standard API. I need a command for this and that. And yeah, that. but 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 so much so much of the interaction in a vehicle is the interface, and both Apple and Google's attempt to take that over takes away intrinsic value from the car manufacturers, and I don't think they're going to want to give it away. We shall see. Uh, forever is a long time, and with see. luck, we'll still have this podcast when it gets here. Topic number three. So, oh, in case you're you, you are one of the people who thinks that it's only the government who does stupid things. Amazon has decided that they need to lay off some people and they're going to right size their organization. They're not laying off engineers at AWS, which is cool. Uh, they're hiring them. And actually, there was an announcement this morning. They're hiring even more. Um, but they have laid off a lot of their recruiters and are hoping that an AI uh, is going to be able to have a, a more effective and more efficient way of picking potential employees for Amazon. Is this like the next level of machine machine learning applied to monster.com or is this just a stupid idea? Oh, this will go well. <laughs> Can't imagine what will possibly go wrong here. Uh, you know, I, I so I'm, I am of two minds, right? So, so the technologist in me wants to see better data presented to humans using artificial intelligence. That seems to me to be the direction that these implementations go best. I am less worried about displacing because every expert that I talk to seems to indicate that the best way that, that, that this is used is when it is augmenting humans. It's providing better information, that it is uh, assisting like in, in work. If you think about artists and what we're seeing in the generative AI field, like it all seems like that. And this is one of those areas where it's like, I think there is a space for artificial intelligence to be assisting recruiters to go through volumes of, of information. And so when I see, oh, you're, you plan to replace, I just laugh. And I go, that's where it will go wrong. Because every single time I talk to experts, they're talking about it augmenting much more than they're talking about it replacing. And so that's the key indicator for me of, yes, this will go badly because they're talking about replacement. Well, and to put a little context around this, this isn't the first time Amazon has tried to do this, right? It's not, it's not just not the first time this has been done because there are an, there's an industry out there, an entire category of providers who sell uh, applications and artificial intelligence enabled technologies to supplement the, the review of resumes and to make hiring 
faster, easier, more accurate, more, more robust, right? Uh, I, that industry exists. Amazon wrote their own. They applied it five or six years ago and they used it for the purpose of screening resumes. And wouldn't you know that an algorithm written by a human adopted many of the biases of the human who wrote that algorithm and therefore applied them to, to the uh, screening process. And as a result, there was tremendous bias introduced into the candidate screening process. And it was only up for just a very short time and Amazon tore it down and said, whoops, sorry, that was very, very embarrassing. And they've taken several years. They swear it's improved. The algorithm is improved and, and the technology is advanced. My question is, have they learned the lesson that diversity is actually a benefit in the hiring process, right? If you go to the raw essential question in conversation, AI is very good at pattern matching. In other words, this is the recipe of the profile of a person I'm looking for. This resume was written to indicate that all of those characteristics or attributes are true for this individual. I match the pattern. AI is very, very good at that particular function. Except that if all you ever do is hire people who look like you or look the same, act the same, have the same background, have the same work experience, went to the same schools, if everybody looks and acts exactly the same, that homogeny in your workforce is a net negative. It's not just philosophy here, right? You need to have people who will say, Dude, I don't understand what you're talking about. Your idea is dumb. It's out of left field because I don't have the same code that you do of experience that makes me just naturally yes man to all of your ideas. You need people who can work constructively in opposition and actually use that tension to make an organization work more effectively. AI will create an army of everybody who looks exactly the same and fits the profile. That's not helping, not Amazon, nor the candidates. And I don't know if they've actually thought at that level of consideration yet. Can you do it? Yes. Should you do it? Yeah, well, no. I guess the should you do it would be not quite yet, but I'm not going to say forever. So <laughs> the, uh, you know, the interesting thing is this is not an issue in small business, right? Because I get whatever, even if I get 150 resumes and I'm somewhat overwhelmed with that, it's 150. It's not 150,000 right? I'm hiring one or two at a time. I'm not hiring 15,000 at a time. So the problem is quite real. And I think if it, if it helps with filtering, that's great. But I'm hoping that somebody is monitoring very carefully to say, oh, okay, at the filtering level, it actually, you know, what are, the, what are our criteria for success with regard to diversity, as well as not just diversity in terms of race, creed, color, and so forth, but diversity in terms of, I want somebody who's a little bit weird. You know, Tony Shea's whole formula of how, how to make Zappos successful is you get a bunch of people who bring a little bit of something weird into the office, and that creates a culture where creativity flourishes. If you just have programmers sitting in cubicles and you hire them en masse uh, by criteria that basically says, all we need is people who are overweight, eat a lot of donuts and you know, drink an unlimited amount of cola, um, you know, you may or may not have success on the creativity front. And so 
I got piles of weed if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty to go around. I mean, so I want to make sure that because Carl, you said it's not a problem for small business, and I want to say mm, we'll pull a last. Well, well, I would put an asterisk on it in that these people are coming into the industry, and eventually some of them will be hired by small businesses. So they're 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 affecting the filter at a mega level. Well, but let me also let me put the my my little asterisk is. Be aware of the systems you're using to do that. So, for example, if you're using recruiting tools, if you are using job boards that include those algorithms and, and data analysis and likely some, some AI, you may be you know, ingesting some of that bias that comes with those algorithms. And, and there's an awareness element that I want to point out saying, like, don't assume because you are smaller and not dealing with the same level of volume that you are unaffected by these workflows you could be. Um, and I think that's, that's important to highlight. See, I'm, I'm going to take that one step further. Anything that you do one or fewer times per year, you are very, very bad at. Whether that is skydiving or swimming or golfing or hiring an employee. If you only actually hire one time per year, you have no perspective on candidates. You have no idea how to interview effectively. You don't know what the latest trends and buzzwords are in resume writing because that's a creative application as well as as a marketing function, right? Um, if you only do it, I would think if I put on my technology hat, this would be a fantastic resource for small businesses if it could be programmed to match the uniqueness of the small business, which violates the use case of software, right? So it's not mass reproducible, so it's never gonna go that direction. But I wish it could because this is the thing, Carl. You say reviewing 150 resumes and hiring a couple of people, that's not hard because you actually do that. What I hear from solution providers all around the industry is I just don't have the time. I don't even know how. I don't know what I'm looking for. And that actually becomes a service that we provide to our clients. We will interview on your behalf and we will give it a first or a second set of eyes to say, this is the right candidate or no, no, you are going the wrong direction because they just simply do not have enough experience to have perspective. I think it's a massive problem in the SMB. I just don't think this AI is going to solve that problem. Well, we could, we could do old topics exactly. on hiring. Just to clarify, <laughs> I was thinking in terms of Amazon not being directly related to the industry, but clearly Indeed yes. and Monster and all those services are using these tools. Luckily, uh, they're not using them exclusively the way Amazon can, right? They, they can't say, here's, here's your new person, take him or leave him. <laughs> well, that will do it for episode 193 of the Killing It Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.